of, as a species, uh, forming a new axial age in which we say we are one species on a planet with millions of others. We are of it, not above it. We're children of the biosphere, not to conquer it, to live in harmony with it at long last, to not put nature on the rack and rest our due, which was the West, but it's now Japan and China and Southeast Asia and all the other cultures that have become first world or are becoming first world, yet lift people out of poverty and be in the world and be humans in some different way that we, we don't know yet. You know, we don't have Martin Luther King to help us. Hello and welcome to The Sacred Speaks. Scary times right now. I am uh, I'm recording this as the 26th of March. And as of now, I'm looking at Johns Hopkins. As of now, we've got 474,204 total confirmed cases of COVID-19 and the amount of deaths are at 21,353. And the issue, of course, is all that. Um, and also the trend. The trend really is what we need to be looking at. So I'm trying to understand this issue. You know, we're all separated out in our homes and I'm a psychotherapist and so I'm, I'm working with people all day long trying to connect with, help them connect with themselves, but also just manage the real rubber meets the road anxieties that everybody's feeling. And the slogan of we're all in this together has never made more sense. So I want to be really brief. I'm going to introduce uh, Dr. Kaufman. I have connected with him already. Check out episode 42 for more information on Dr. Stuart Kaufman. Uh, but for now, we're going to jump to it. I'm going to read just a moment of his bio, introduce a couple of uh, other tidbits. Stuart Allen Kaufman is an American medical doctor, theoretical biologist, and complex systems researcher who studies the origin of life on Earth. He was a professor at the University of Chicago, University of Pennsylvania, University of Calgary, and is currently Emeritus Professor of Biochemistry at the University of Pennsylvania and affiliate faculty at the Institute for Systems Biology. Check him out, look him up online, and uh, he's, he's wonderful. Certainly listen to the previous episode. 
I reached out to Stu because I wanted to know how he's thinking through what's going on because I knew he would be. And uh, it it's helpful to consider that um, while, as he says, while the house is on fire right now, we also need to be looking ahead at how to kind of restructure the way in which we live. So, and that's primarily what, what the conversation's about. I think it's rather hopeful, despite the fact that things seem confusing on the one hand. Um, you know, the questions like, well, we've seen things like this before, what's different about this? Uh, of course, not many people alive today have been through such a a massive, move, you know, worldwide movement. Um, and we we really are one voice right now that we we know what's on everybody's mind okay two two things first throughout the conversation Stu mentions a couple of papers one from Neil Ferguson et al at Imperial College which I have uh, and and the other is a paper by Mikhail Prokopenko uh, from the Center for Complex Systems at the University of Sydney the f- first article by Neil Ferguson et al. is Impact of Non-Pharmaceutical Interventions, NPIs, to Reduce COVID-19 Mortality and Healthcare Demand. And the uh, Prokopenko article is Modeling Transmission and Control of the COVID Pandemic in Australia. So on the, if you go to Instagram and click on the bio page, you'll be taken to the link tree. And I've included a link to both these articles. So if you're curious, go ahead at that route. I'll find a way to post it somewhere else. But for now, that's uh, the, the, that's the link. I've read the, I've read the articles and uh, they're scary. Um, certainly in the U.S. right now, we're, we're not seeing as much of an intervention as, as we need to. And Neil Ferguson who is working closely with all governments and is predicting that in the U.S. without drastic shifts, about 2.2 million people will die. And, uh, and essentially he lays out the approach that we can make that he's recommending worldwide that I think some are doing, but I don't know the numbers in the U.S. I don't, I know that all aren't doing it. And if we look at the Prokopenko article, it's just not enough. So there's real reason to be concerned, and the idea of kind of getting back to, quote, normal, um, we need to really analyze kind of what normal is. Um, But for right now, just, as they say, wash your hands, stay safe, and keep your distance. Seems odd (laughs) jumping into the next piece, but I want to give credit where credit's due. Today on the podcast, the theme music is Modern Nations. You can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And the other music that I'm using is from Tycho, and it's Tycho Music. The The song that you heard at the beginning is from the album Weather in 2019 from Tycho, and the song is Skate, featuring Saint Sinner. And if you hang out to the end of the conversation, you'll hear the whole track. What else? This podcast is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. Look us up at the Center for H-A-S, T-H-E-C-E-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-H-A-S.com. There are links on Instagram and, um, and you can be, you can go to the Center's website, Instagram page there. 
The center is an integrative clinic, boutique holistic clinic that my wife and I started in Houston. And so we're, we're really trying to not only, I mean, currently figure out how we continue providing people the space they need, um, certainly in a new and different way now. So we're, uh, we're working really hard trying to address some of the needs, wellness needs, how to boost immune systems and how to kind of manage anxieties and maintain, I think, I think maintain or create a curious sense of how to imagine who, who each of us is and how we're to understand something that's so totally disrupting our kind of willful path so totally taking out our most basic routines um, for um, for living and uh, it, that's a time to be deeply contemplative and discover what uh, what really matters so I also wrote I'm in the process of writing a, a blog or article working through these you can check that out at uh, at the center's website uh, the center for healing arts and sciences on the website at the bottom of the page. And I'll be putting out part two of the article uh, later this week or maybe beginning of next week. Oh, the one thing I do want to say about the conversation, uh, there's a, there's a section about halfway through where, where Dr. Kaufman's talking about some of the solutions to this. And, uh, I, I want to kind of put a flag in the sand there, hang through that. He's, he's offering some really important ideas about kind of medical intervention and uh, the, the possibilities that we have beyond vaccines. And they're, they're, of course, theoretical, but there are a lot of people working on this right now. For those interested, I recommend reading these two articles. They are helpful to, uh, to, to give us the reasons why we need to be social distancing and socially isolating. Okay, I think that's it. Check out what you can check out, and uh, thanks for being here. And for now, we'll leave it there. Be, uh, be gentle with each other. I want to dive in, and um, you know, when I reached out to you, and I'm really grateful that you said you'd do this, my my curiosity was well i wanted to know what you thought and how you're thinking through this given all the languages that you speak and of course i'm talking about the various languages from biology and systems to economics and politics and i i'm sitting right here with a <laughs> with a number of you so i've got your book reinventing the sacred another book that you wrote a world beyond physics then a paper called Beyond the Stalemate, Conscious Mind-Body, Quantum Mechanics, Free Will, Possible Panpsychism, Possible Interpretation of Quantum Enigma, and then also a simple combinatorial model of world economic history. That's a lot. Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> well, and that's, that's precisely why I wanted to chat, because I think one of the great things that you do is you tend to integrate and combine information from different sources. So if, if you would, we're, we're just up and rolling. You good with that? Yeah, I'm good with it. Okay. Uh, can I talk, uh, I, what I'd like to do is talk about COVID-19 
and what I think is going on now. Well, would you first, uh, because, I, you know, considering there are going to be people, people listening to this that haven't heard our first conversation, which I'll direct people to, would you give just a 60-second bio of what what brings you to be able to speak on this subject? Okay. Uh, and I, I don't quite remember, John, what we talked about last time. I think we talked about a lot of stuff, and it was we did. really neat time. <laughs> we did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still okay. a professor, John. If you poke a button, you get a lecture. I mean, it's terrible. <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, here's the brief bio. So, my name is Stuart Kaufman. I, uh, uh, I'm 80 years old, almost 80 and a half. Um, I trained in philosophy, then in medicine. Uh, so, I am an MD. I delivered a bunch of babies, including my daughter. Um, and then I went into science, and I've worked in biology and some in physics and some in economics. For the purposes of talking about COVID-19, I am an MD. I had the founding patent with my friend Mark Balivet in 1985 on the idea of making very large numbers of different random DNA sequences, putting them into bacteria to make random RNA sequences to make different random proteins that could be used to make drugs and vaccines and so on. And that became a huge field known as combinatorial chemistry. So Balivet and I held the founding patent, so I know about that area. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess if I want to put this into a framework, John, I suppose at 80 I feel I have the right. The largest framework is the following. What's happening now with COVID-19 is not an accident. It's a consequence of the global economy, which is now $100 trillion. It's growing from $100 trillion at 4% a year. It's lifting millions of people from poverty. Mm -hmm. It's uniting our nations in trade. It's increasing literacy. It's increasing health. The same global economy, which is a juggernaut, is what is driving climate change, which is not an accident. It is driving a mass extinction now. If you've not seen the UN report uh, from a year ago, May, it is expected that by 2050, 30 years from now, one million species are going to be extinct. That's 20% of the standing diversity. It's a mass extinction. Meanwhile, we're invading habitats all over the place, and viruses are coming out of the woods and infecting us in wave after wave of pandemics, of which COVID-19 is the latest and ravaging example. There's a, a, a fundamental message here. We face, as a species, for the first time in our history, a choice. We will either keep growing our global economy at 4% a year and continue to invade every habitat and have what we have now, which is climate change with sea levels rising and the coral reefs destroyed with acidification of the oceans, more and more extinction events and more and more waves of pandemics, or we will, as a single species, now 7.7 .7 billion of us in which COVID-19 is swimming, swarming, multiplying, evolving, and killing, we will change the way we live in our world in such a way that we stop doing that. It's huge. It's civilizational, it's global, and it's existential. 
and nobody's putting it all together. It's just astonishing. All you have to do is think about it for a minute. John, this equation that that uh, well, you saw this, the history of uh, of economics, economic history with John with Roger Koppel. Um, I happened to write down an equation, more or less three years. It's an incredibly simple equation. I've only written down one in my life. Uh, and what it asks is the following. If you have, say, 20 goods in a little economy now, how many goods will you have in your or, or tools? How many will you have in the next period, whatever period it is? And the basic idea is you, you keep the ones that work. So if you had 20, now you have at least 20 in the next period. And then you make new things out of the 20, trying them one at a time or any possible pair or any triplet or any quadruplet. You just try all the possible combinations of things that you have on hand to see if you can solve problems. Uh, so to put this in the context, uh, we derived from Australopithecus three million years ago. Then that became Homo erectus and Homo habilis and Homo sapiens and our cousins, Neanderthal and so on. If you look at the growth in the number of tools and their differentiation to simple and complex tools, it's glacial for millions of years. Homo sapiens has been around for about 300,000 years. We started making compound tools uh, about 300,000 years ago, where you take a knife blade and attach it to a, 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 a handle with a a sinew. So once we started making compound tools, the building of tools was combinatorial. Mm -hmm. So is language. Mm -hmm. And what happened is that from 300,000 years ago until about 40 or 50,000 years ago, the pace of technological evolution was incredibly slow. By the time you get to Cro-Magnon about 30,000 years ago, we have a few hundred tools, but they're becoming differentiated. You have, you have, uh, you have arrowheads and fishing hooks, um, but you also have the atlatl, which is a spear thrower, uh, which is a neat tool. It meant, meant that you could throw a spear at an auroch from 20 meters away or 10 meters away. You never run up and stab it. So watch the space of technological change be gradual. And then this equation, which I call the TAP equation, meaning the theory of the adjacent possible, mm -hmm. by theorem and by simulation does the following. It increases at a glacial pace, where the number of goods increases slowly and the differentiation into simpler, more complex goods increases slowly. And then it explodes upward, John. And it explodes upward faster than any exponential. In fact, it explodes upward so fast that the continuous version of it reaches infinity at some finite time. It has mathematically singularity. The actual equation is discrete. It doesn't have a singularity. It explodes upward faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. That's what's happening now. Would you, would you the, define singularity? Oh, it's uh, it's uh, so. Remember, you remember the, uh, a Cartesian coordinate system, x and y. So x is time, and y is whatever you're thinking. Mm -hmm. Something that's a singularity is a curve that goes uh, level for a while, then it, it shoots upward vertically. So it reaches infinity at some finite time because it just keeps shooting upward. It goes vertical. Does that make sense? Yes. Singularity literally means you reach infinity at finite time. Well, no process can. The discrete version of this equation uh, goes fast when it when it takes off goes faster and faster and faster. Roger Koppel, I, uh, Michael Steele, who proved the theorems in Hordick, we have shown that this equation does that, and we think it explains 
the explosion in the number of goods and services about 150 to 200 years ago, and the explosion vertical upward now, nearly vertical, is the modern economy. We got from a few goods and services to maybe a thousand, then maybe eight or nine thousand. We have billions of goods and services now. And the reason is, uh, the, this analogy is correct. If you have to jury rig something, uh, you know, got a, a, a leak in the wall, would you rather go to your garage and there's one thing in the garage, you know, a bent spoon, or have a few hundred things in the garage that you can jury rig with? It's easier to jury with lots of things. That's what this equation says, John, and it's right. So the fundamental thing underlying where we are now, it's not bad, it's our own creativity. It's our very creativity for a couple million years, building and making things that are useful in all kinds of ways. So the, the speed of technological evolution was very slow. It took thousands of years to make night blades a little longer. Uh, then it took you know, you know forever. So this is, this is how I can gauge it. My father was born in 1903, the year that the Wright brothers invented the airplane. By the way, by combining four things, an airfoil, a light gas engine, a bicycle wheel, and a repeller. My son was born in 1969, 66 years later, roughly uh, five days after we landed on the moon. In 66 years, we got from no flight then flight by one technology, then landing on the moon by an entirely different technology. That is this combinatorial explosion. If you've got lots of things, there's lots of ways of making new things out of them. It's happening. And it's that that is driving the growth of the global economy. That's this is the fundamental thing underlying technological cumulative evolution. And it's this that is driving the global economy that's a juggernaut, that is going up 4% a year until a couple months ago that is driving the climate change we know, to say it again, mass extinction, which we sort of know, and right now, it's driving COVID-19. We are, for the first time, as a species of 7.7 .7 billion years of us, year, years, uh, 7.7 .7 billion, 7, 7 .7 billion human beings, uh, I think we are, right now, and in the next couple of months, more aware that we're a single species than we've ever been. Mm. And the reason's right. We are a single breeding pool, pop, pot, in which COVID-19 is evolving, breeding, killing. So to go back to where I was, the overarching issue truly is, we must as a species confront the fact that we are doing this. We're not being evil, we're not being bad. Some of us are, but that's not what's happening. What's happening is we've got so many ways of making new useful things that we keep doing it, in part because we can make money, in part because uh, you know we like apps on our iPhones, in part we're making useless things like purple plastic penguins for the poolside, and we have to make a choice. We really do, and I, I am hoping, truly hoping, Don, that the next several years uh, are a teaching moment for all of humanity to say, okay, what are we going to do? So, and I couldn't be more serious. This is the biggest issue. It's what we're called upon to do. And I'd like to put it in a couple of other contexts, if I may. Um, uh, Gordon Brown was prime minister of the UK a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. And he said something that I thought was amazing for the prime minister of the UK. He said, we're all reduced to price tags. Well, we know we are in a consumer society. Uh, 
pertinent to your career and mine, John, is reduced from what? And as soon as you say it, you start to know the answer. We're reduced from the center of our humanity. The center of our humanity is not buying brooms, although they're useful for cleaning, and it's not buying things. It's not, it's not consumer activity. Lots of people have existed without that. The center of our humanity is somewhere else. It's not this, and we have to find it again. That's what we're reduced from. So that's spiritual, but practical, I'll get to too. So let's think about the global economy. The flow of goods in one direction is the flow of money in the other direction. So that's GDP. How does GDP increase? Well, either the same goods flow faster, or you make new goods and they join the old flow and that all flows faster. Uh, and one of the ways of making things that flow faster are things like planned obsolescence and things that break. Uh, and we're earning our living by it. We really are earning our living by it. We can't keep doing it. The global economy is growing at 4% a year, and we can't keep doing it. So some thoughts cross my mind, and you know, I'm not an expert, but obviously one is the circular economy that you know we're all thinking about, that you take the stuff and you reuse it and you recycle. But another thought's the following. This might be of use. I, I don't know that it is. Um, uh, I have a friend in Sweden, Lars Larsson. He uh, has, his family has lived on the same land north of Stockholm for a thousand years. Uh, and Lars has a barn that's 500 years old made out of wood that he uses. Well, that's, that's pretty lovely. And then you think, what if we made things that lasted a lot longer? People did 200 years ago. We didn't make things to throw away. We passed things down from generation to generation. Well, if we made things that truly lasted longer, uh, the velocity of goods would slow down. So GDP would either go down or it wouldn't go up as fast. So we wouldn't earn as much money. But to be simple about it, we wouldn't need to earn so much money if we've already bought the things that last a long time. Could we do that? Well, people did in the 18th century. Yeah, but we, we don't. Didn't, in the we didn't have the technology. Century. Huh? We didn't have that technology. Then it's kind of yeah. we're we're competing with ourselves here. Then in in this model, we are. And there's one more thing that I I think this is true. And I find it fascinating. There's pretty good data that hunter gatherers today work three to five hours a day. We work eight hours a day. Why? Yeah. Well, the hunter-gatherers, you know, when they work, they really work. They're running after whatever they're running after, and they might starve. But uh, there's reasonable grounds to think that 20,000 years ago, the average person was well off as most people are today, and there's been a lot of work on it. Suppose that we could possibly get interested in making things that lasted longer, let GDP grow at a tenth of a percent a year, figure out how to lift millions from poverty. It's working, we have to lift millions from poverty. Find our centers again as humans, have more leisure time to do so because we're working three to five hours a day and uh, revisit our ideal of what it is to be a human being. As in the Greek ideal of eudaimonia and the well-lived life, mm -hmm. we have no notion in modern society and certainly in America under, you know, for example, our president, we have no idea of the well-lived life. So this is also an enormous opportunity. This is the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced. It's worse than World War II. More me, people may let me, die. Let me stop you there for a second, Stu, because... Yeah, I'm, I I'm done with my peroration. 
I want to I jump in here. Yeah, I couldn't mean it more seriously, John. So, and that's that's part of um, where I see a lot of skepticism. I, I, before we spoke, I actually just wanted to check into social media and see what all the various arguments that are going back and forth. And what you have are people that are saying, look, this thing is not deadly. It's got a low 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 kill rate, so to speak. And you th you see the like HIV AIDS, Spanish flu, uh, there, there are all these, it's compared to all these other viruses. And so, but you're concerned in a different way. What's the difference for you than something like the Spanish flu from 1918 or the plague even earlier? Well, how can, look, I'm a, I'm a doctor as well as an old man and a scientist. Of course, the main thing that we're concerned with right now is COVID-19 is crashing on the planet. What I just told you is what I think the biggest issue is. We are causing it. It's not an accident. It's us invading habitats. But but I'd like also to talk about some of what I know, uh, I, we all know, but I'm learning about COVID-19 because I'm a scientist and I have friends around. So here's the next thing to say. We all know, so, uh, so let me back up and say this. So here we are with social distancing. There are two studies. I will send you the links, John. You don't have a way of getting them out. There's a, a study by uh, Neil Ferguson from Imperial College and a group that came out March 16th that studies social distancing in various ways in the United States and England and uh, considers isolation, considers closing down schools, and so on. And he shows, or the group shows, that if, if it's extensive enough, it really does blunt the flood of the virus. Um, and the other is a study that just came out by Mikhail Prokopenko uh, in Sydney, his friend. And he's done a study using an agent-based model uh, that's spatially organized in Australia. And he finds roughly the following. First, uh, social distancing, less than 70%, doesn't work. More than 80%, it does work. If you're at 70% and up, cool, school closings help by about 10%. Mm -hmm. Below that, school closings don't help. And you have to do it for 13 weeks. Right now, today, the President of the United States is saying that he's considering lifting uh, social uh, distancing right. in a couple of weeks so we can get the country back at work. Uh, the, the health professionals are telling him not to. I don't know who knows the results right now from Imperial and uh, Mikhail Prokokenko's studies just came out published yesterday. So I have now forwarded it to friends of mine who write for the New York Times and Scientific American and to a bunch of science colleagues. I think it's essential to get these two studies into the hands of the 90, the 90, the 50 governors in the United States because the governors can act independently of the president. Our president can't even state in public what the, what the, the symptoms of the disease are while he's being our wartime president. The guy is grotesquely incompetent and dangerous. I mean, the question is how many more people are going to get sick and die uh, in the United States and the world because the virus is spreading in the United States and from us to others and, and all of these ways. And in part it's because Donald Trump had a clue. It's, beyond grotesque, it's just hideous. So that's the next thing to say. 
another thing to say is the following. We all know that we're waiting for 12 to 18 months for a vaccine. There are other things that are going on, John, and I've just written something for some colleagues in England. I may or may not have the courage to publish it. But people need to know that there are other approaches uh, while we're waiting for a vaccine. So there are ways to try to make antivirals. Uh, and I'm going to mention three. Uh, there's something called phage display, which is uh, a wonderful technique. It's been around for 30 years. A phage is a virus that infects a bacterium. And phage display is you take 100 million different copies of the same virus and you clone into it or engineer into it a different random DNA sequence. And the little random DNA sequence makes a little random uh, sequence of, of uh, 5 to 15 amino acids, a little peptide, which is exhibited or displayed on the surface, different for each of the 100 million uh, phage. Got it? Yes. So I've got 100 million viruses, and they all make a different little protein on their surface. Then you take those, and you, you it's been done many, many, many times by the drug companies. Mark Bailey, they actually invented it in 1985. We didn't put it in our patent. Uh, George Smith invented it in 1990, and he got the Nobel Prize for it a few years ago. So you take this library of about 100 million phage, and you see if you can bind to something. Well, in particular, take COVID-19, and try to find a, a virus that makes a peptide that binds to COVID-19. For example, to the tail fiber of COVID-19. Well, if you find such a peptide, and you will, almost certainly, that peptide can be an antiviral that binds to the tail fiber of COVID-19 and blocks the capacity of COVID-19 to infect. Got the idea? Yeah. So it, it almost certainly will work. There's decent statistics that the probability of finding something that binds is about one in a million. Let me, so if before, you have a, we, before we continue with this, though, I, I feel like we need to tend to some of this for a second and just talk about a virus in the first place. Because a virus, if if I'm correct in understanding, is something that replicates RNA. Is that is that correct? Could be RNA or it could be DNA. Okay. Yeah. And so there are so the virus a, itself. Okay. Yeah. You you do the talking. So this will be on my pay grade. So a virus is. You can Google it and find out what a virus is. A virus is either uh, either a, a strand of DNA or a strand of RNA. It's packaged up. It itself uh, has genes, and it the viral particle is this DNA or RNA surrounded by a packaging set of a bunch of little a bunch of proteins. So it's packaged up in the structure that looks a little bit like a rocket ship. And the rocket ship from its bottom has tail sticking down, just like the lander on the moon. Those are called the viral tail fibers. And what typically viruses do is they land on the surface of a cell by these tail fibers. Uh, the virus then in, drills a hole in the cell membrane and injects its DNA or RNA. And then the DNA or RNA of the virus commandeers the cell machinery of the cell it infected, and the cell, using the cell's machinery, uh, uses the viral genes to make the viral proteins and to replicate the viral DNA or RNA, which then assembles inside the cells to make a whole bunch of viral particles that typically burst the cell and come out and infect other cells. So that that's well, uh, which, virus and, does. And in the case of COVID nineteen, that's what happens to the lung cells. It's the it's the lining yeah. of the lungs. Right. 
Yes. So one can hope to block, there's good grounds to think we can block COVID-19 if we can find a peptide using phage display that binds to the tail protein uh, or other parts of the virus and just says you can't, so can't infect the cell. So that's one technique. It's available worldwide. You can buy phage libraries commercially. I'm uh, sort of amused that Mark and I didn't have it in our patent because we'd have made you know $11. So that's one approach. Another approach is called monoclonal antibodies, and this has been known since the 70s. So take a patient who's been infected with, uh, with COVID-19 and has gotten over it. That patient has made an immune response to the COVID-19. Uh, an immune response is the patient's uh, immune cells, are called B cells, make antibodies. And when you have an immune response to COVID-19, basically you have made B cells that make antibodies that bind to COVID-19. So if you think of the COVID-19, the, the uh, bump sticking out of COVID-19 called an epitope as a key, the antibody molecule made by a B cell is like a lock, and the lock binds to the key, therefore the antibody molecule binds to COVID-19 and doesn't work. And so you, you block COVID-19. This is the same idea, mm -hmm. but you use the immune response. Okay, so in the 1970s, I can't remember the name of the person. I used to know it. Uh, they, they got a Nobel Prize for showing you could take the B cell from somebody and you could, quote, immortalize it, that single B cell. So it now made billions of cells that make the identical antibody molecule. Hmm. So you've now made a cell that makes millions of cells. So it's one clone. So it's called a monoclonal, and they're called monoclonal antibodies. This has been around for 30 years, and people make monoclonal antibodies to treat all kinds of things including uh, efforts a few years ago by a company in Switzerland, I have heard, to make a monoclonal to treat Ebola. Well, so the, the idea is obvious. Uh, take sera, serum, blood, from patients who've recovered from or been exposed to COVID-19 and make monoclonal antibodies uh, that you can squirt into a patient uh, who may be exposed to the virus, and it blocks, again, say, the covid uh, 19 tail fibers. It's the same idea. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in this case, you have to get an immune response from a patient, and then you have to make the monoclonals. I believe that there's a number of companies that are springing up to try to do that right now. Uh, so yeah. that's happening. I don't know, yes or no, people are doing phage display, which I'm urging to try to help go. A third approach is something called siRNA. So this is also a known technique. SIRNA stands for short interfering RNA. So here's the biology. You all know you have a, a, a gene, and the gene is, quotes, transcribed into a, a messenger RNA. Then the messenger RNA is translated into a protein. What SIRNA does is it binds to the messenger RNA and blocks it from being translated into the protein. Understandable? Yes. So here's the idea, and there are people trying this, including some people I'm talking to in Santa Fe, make an siRNA that binds to uh, some messenger RNA from the virus. So again, here's the virus. The virus injects its genetic material into the cell. Then the, the cell uh, transcribes the viral genes uh, into viral RNA, and so now here's some viral RNA that codes for the code protein of the virus, for example, or the tail fiber of the virus, or the, the protein that 
that that that reproduces the the uh, genetic material of the virus, and you make an siRNA that blocks the translation of that messenger RNA into the protein, so you've just blocked the virus. You, you see the idea, John? Well, there are people doing that. In fact, I'm talking to two people here in Santa Fe who are filing a patent tomorrow on what sounds like a, a, a really good idea that could be stood up fairly rapidly uh, to do it. So that's happening. Uh, I've got one more to tell you about, if I may. Please. Uh, so um, this was done by uh, my friend John Miller, who's an economist, with two oncologists at Carnegie Mellon a few years ago. And they wanted to do the following. They took nine different drugs, each one of which treats cancer, and they wanted to see if they could find, and here's the critical idea, combinations of those nines that might be better at treating this cancer than any single drug. So the question is, can you seek for combinations? So I'm going to tell you what they did, then what might be might be possible. So they 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 have done this and it's published. I'm trying to get John's paper. I can't quite. He's at Carnegie Mellon, John Miller. Uh, so they took petri plates with a cancer cell line. And uh, they treated with combinations of these nine drugs. So let me define a combination. I've got nine drugs, one through nine. A combination is drug one, three, four, and seven, present or absent. Well, there's nine drugs, so there's two times two times two to the ninth, or 516 or whatever it is, uh, possible combinations. So take a combination. I just gave you one, I get whatever I said, one three, four, and seven, and they're present or absent. That's not tuned concentrations. And, and treat the cancer cells in the plate and see how well you kill them. Now, score how well you kill them. Now, mutate the combination by adding a drug not present or removing a drug present. So if you had one, three, four, seven, add eight or delete three. So there's a, 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 a specific number of one mutant combinations, right? You with me? There's really crux. Yes. Uh, and it's not that many if, if there's only nine. And so try all of the one mutant combination and see if any of them are better mm -hmm. than the original combination. Pick the better one. Make the one mutant combinations, one mutant combination from that. So you got whatever it is, 20 one mutant combinations. Try those and pick uh, the, either the best one or better ones and keep doing it till you can't get any better. You've climbed to a local optima on a fitness landscape. It's like getting to the top of a peak in the Rockies. Uh, and so that's called climbing a, a landscape, or a clinical, uh, you know, clinical landscape. There's a big literature on it. And they found that they were able to climb to an unknown combination of three cancer drugs that work better than any uh, of the pairs or singles. So it's possible and published and it worked. Hold that. Now, here's something that should be possible, John. I'm not sure it is, but let's be careful. It, it, it must be possible. I'm being silly because I this it's of course possible, but I, I assume that we could take human cells and infect them with the virus COVID-19. So we've now got live human cells, say a cell line, uh, 
infected with COVID-19. So it's incredibly dangerous. But there are facilities for containment. They're called P4 facilities. We have them in Fort Detrick. Uh, And and big drug companies probably have them. So imagine that we have now, so with that in mind, suppose that we can take a library from a drug company like Merck or Northern. They have, they have, there are, there are thousands of FDA approved drugs, including the ones that we're trying right now from uh, Gilead. And there's something from a uh, Japanese company and the, the uh, malarial treatment that mm-hmm. Donald Trump is touting and whatever. And right now we are trying them one at a time. But there's all kinds of drugs. There's things for treating blood pressure and, and so on. Okay. I'm going to make this real in a moment, but let me tell you the idea first. So we can take all sorts of drugs that are already FDA approved, and we can try treating our cell line transformed with or infected with COVID-19 and see if uh, some, some, you know, pick, pick nine again, nine drugs out of the drug library intelligently if you can, and hill climb and find combinations of already FDA approved drugs that can treat. You have the idea? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's possible. But there's grounds to think that will work. And people don't know all of this. Uh, very few people know. Um, years ago, I had the idea that cancer is a disease in which cell types different to abnormal cell types. It's not just due to somatic mutations. It's an aberration of differentiation. If you say that, then there's a possibility that you could trick a cancer cell into being normal by causing it to differentiate into a normal cell type. Is that idea clear? Cells differentiate into one another yes. from the fertilized egg. So about 10 years ago, Sui Huang and I and some others, uh, we were at the University of Calgary at the time, and Sui is now at the Institute for Systems Biology and uh, Joseph Zhao. Sui uh, did the work. Uh, I got $3 million from the Canadian government we screened 1,500 FDA-approved drugs and asked for each one of them, uh, if we drip you onto a cancer, an immature cancer, breast cancer cell line, can we induce the cell to differentiate into an adult breast cell? So we're trying to make things, induce things to differentiate. And we screened 1,500, we found 15 FDA-approved drugs that in fact could cause this breast cancer cell line to differentiate into an adult breast cell. And then we showed that in fact they changed their patterns of gene expression from one cell type to another. Well, this has nothing to do with COVID-19. What it does show is you can find drugs that were created for one purpose that could do something as remarkable as taking a cancer cell and causing it to differentiate to another cell type. John, we know that works. Uh, and it's, it's in general trying to find drugs that can be used for something that's not their standard purpose. Put all that together with, for example, the success that Sui and I had and Joseph Zhao and others, we will be able to find combinations of drugs that right now are in the pharmacopoeia um, that will be able to treat COVID-19. And we could probably do that you know, reasonably fast. I don't know what reasonably fast is. And if we can do that, they're already FDA approved. They wouldn't need full clinical trials. I don't know what they would need, but you'd have to establish that the combination was safe. Well, if that could get stood up fast, sorry for grunting, if we could stand that up fast, um, 
we might be able to get antivirals, you know, in, you know, four or five, six months, not a year to 18 months. Uh, and, you know, we, we understand what that means. Here's the study out of, out of Imperial and Prokopenko's study saying we can flatten the curve and not overwhelm the hospitals if we can get antivirals uh, with some kind of time delay, one month, three months, seven months, of some kind of efficiencies in knocking down the disease, how will that alter, how will that alter the, the pandemic? So I don't have a lab. I'm just an old man. Well, 80 years old. So I'm trying to make this stuff happen by contacting people. Uh, uh, and, uh, so I have a friend who knows the chief scientific officer at Merck, for example. Well, this is, as soon as you've heard it and heard that it's worked, it's a pretty obvious idea. I don't know that anybody's trying it right now, but it is not hard to try. Well, the, the thing that, if we back up, because what we're listening to is how you're combining all your creativity and f getting into the solution. You're, you're able to have an idea of how to solve for this massive problem. If we back up way far, we can say, Stu, you, you sound concerned about what's happening, rightly so. I think what people are having trouble getting their heads around is why is this thing, why is COVID-19 creating such havoc as opposed to any other issue that's happened in the past you know, 30, 40 years? What's unique about COVID-19? Well, we're, we're, we're both just guys, or we're, we just, we're just both homo sapiens. Here's a, here's a quite virulent uh, virus that's, you know, it came out of Wuhan, uh, maybe from pangolins, we, I guess we don't know yet. And we are a global population, and it could spread like mad, and it is, and we're aware of what's happening. I think we are so incredibly aware of it, as I said before, because right now, I think 7.7 .7 billion of us do truly know we're one species. We are, and here, unlike global warming, which will raise oceans, uh, and if you live near the coast, you, you, you're getting flooded, but there's a place to retreat to, it's uphill. And there are forest fires, but there's a place to retreat to, you know, where there aren't forest fires. Mm -hmm. uh, and unlike extinction events, which are, emotionally pretty far away uh this is right here right now literally in our face for all of us i think we're incredibly aware of the fact that we're one species right now john and we are that's why this is not now but in the next two or three years it's a it's a global teaching moment it really is existential it really is global and it's civilization if we do not alter the juggernaut global economy it's going to keep happening. We're going to keep having waves of pandemics. Well, because it seems to me that there's two layers there that we're really operating on. There's the biological layer, then a psychological layer, certainly spiritual right. and interpersonal. Yeah. But the it, and this is hard for people to grasp because there's there's definitely a biological threat. That's uh, overwhelming. It's, it's obvious. Yeah. But there seems to be something else that's present here because most people I talk to are a mixture of terrified and also full of life and ready for change. Of course, there are people that are having economic, significant economic hits, and we're just ramping up on this thing. So, yeah. so you, you seem to be 
acknowledging the the biological threat and almost indicating that we're in for more of these things, as many people have suggested, because of the nature of climate change. But but then there's this also relate this related issue around our psychology, and how that how that flows into our culture and our creation of technology, and and that that issue is is in need of some kind of radical shift. And and so that we're kind of there's a combination here of the yes we have a biological threat yes on some deep level we're all well aware that the way we're living with overpopulation globalization the economics you know the way we're living can't sustain it, it's not possible so right. so would you speak about that for a second i don't know if i'm drawing those bridges enough but no you, you absolutely are drawing uh, okay good we all know it we are caught by the tail of the tiger of 21st century capitalism which is wonderful it really is lifting millions of people from poverty and we have to continue to lift millions of people from poverty um we are not in the world we need i i this is going to sound grandiose and i don't mean it but uh toynbee talked about the birth of civilizations their maturation and their death and that in the death of a civilization there was a spiritual rebirth he may have oversold it the, the canonical case is the end of the roman empire and the birth of christianity well for a thousand years in christianity the aim wasn't welfare in this life the aim was to where would you be in the next life in heaven or hell and we human beings in western europe did that for a thousand years we can be in the world in quite different ways than we are native americans aren't in the world the way western mm-hmm. first world civilization is we weren't in the 17th century we weren't in the 15th century in the west uh, so Native Americans and, and Native peoples, in the, in the broad sense of Native people, aren't in the world this way at all. Uh, uh, Oren Lyons is a very well-respected uh, uh, Native American who speaks on these topics in front of the UN all the time. We need a profound spiritual transformation. Um, basically we need jesus and we don't have jesus we need some leadership something that guides us to i think well who am i to speak i'm just another person just think of just think of gordon brown's statement we're reduced to price tags we all understand it and then as soon as you see that and you say reduced from what you get this hunting sense of we're missing our center well we have the chance to find our centers as a species with 30 civilizations weaving together around the globe and ask what can we create together that lives lives in harmony with nature. So there's another critical statement. Um, Francis uh, Bacon in around 1680, whenever he wrote Novum Organum, certainly said, well, this is the time when we're stopping reading Aristotle and beginning to look at the world. And it's the birth of empiricism. And Francis Bacon certainly says, I take all knowledge to be my province. And then he almost says, and it's the meaning, and this is essential, to put nature on the rack and rest our due. I don't know if he precisely said that, but that's the meaning. In in one sentence, to put nature on the rack and rest our due is the core of Western civilization. It's not the enlightenment, well, it's even the enlightenment. We are resting from nature our due. We put nature on the rack. We are above nature. 
We are not of nature. Well, that isn't true for lions. Uh, that isn't true for uh, uh, the aboriginals in Australia 400 years ago. It's true for Western civilization. So we've done wonderful things, but we have to become of nature again and not above nature, or we're going to kill ourselves and we're going to kill millions of organisms and at least a million species and a huge mass extinction event that's going on. A billion, a billion organisms died in Australia with the fires. Every now and then our news mentioned the fact that a billion kangaroos and wombats or whatever they are died. And the big news is that 28 people died. Well, it's terrible that 28 people died. Frankly, it's a lot worse that a billion organisms got killed in the wildfires that are there because of global warming because we can't stop growing in our juggernaut economy at 4% a year because that's where the money is and that's where our lives are wrapped up. And it is wrapped up that way. John, I mean, you're earning a living. I'm earning my living. Our meaning is all wrapped up in the global mm -hmm. economy and what our roles are in that global economy. To jolt to something different is an enormous transformation. Well, and it's hard to, you know, I'm, I'm hearing people that are getting hit economically, and of course they, I mean, we could hook them up to all the brain scans and all that and notice they're having that physiological responses and they're identifying it as anxiety or shame or terror because they're watching their stocks go down or they're watching the fact that they can't go to work right now and- And they have no money. And they have and no- we're, but, And we're waiting for Congress for the Senate to pass a bill that gets money into people's hands and not, you know, maybe they will today. I hope they do. Well, and that's, that's the issue. What I've been telling people is look, as difficult as it is, what we're watching is the revealing core values, where you are anxious, where you are having these, whatever's coming up for you through this process is revealing to you some of your core values. And if you've tied your sense of self-worth to your net worth, then that's going to hurt a lot. And so it, it's just difficult to ask somebody to consider another way of being. And so everybody's in an utter and complete state of chaos as we're all considering, shit, I, I can't live my life in the way that I've been living, yet I desperately want to go back to that thing because it was really nice, or at least it was familiar. And now I'm, I'm I don't know what to do. And so... That, that sense of what I'm also seeing, the redemptive and life-giving piece of all this is that creativity is coming online, innovation is coming online, and there's a lot it of uh, kind of radical thinking as people are put outside of their comfort and f their comfortable and familiar zones into a totally uncharted territory. But but look, Stuart, as a I'm a I'm a younger guy, you know, like. And and so I think, well, shit, you know, okay, Spanish flu, World War II, World War One, human beings have gone through this. Why is this different? You know, it's true. We know it's different. It's hard to articulate why it's different, right? Uh, somehow we know we've caused it ourselves without meaning to, mm -hmm. and now we face its consequences, which are really bad. Uh, to, to, to just address what you said right now, yeah, there's, a, you know, obviously millions of people are losing their job and they don't have money to buy food and you can't go to the store very easily without wearing a face mask. It's, it's, it's hideous right now. The mm -hmm. global, the house is on fire around the globe. Um, do you know about the axial age? 
No. Uh, Carl Jasper, J-A-S-P-E-R, made it kind of famous in the 1950s. It was a period around 1,000 to 500 BC, maybe 1,500 to 500 BC, uh, around the globe when it seemed that, as Jasper puts it, humanity made a transition from uh, looking for gods of the hunt and the pond and the stone to seeking, quote, something higher. And you know, we, we got Confucianism and we got Buddha somewhat later, mm. and we got, uh, we got Plato and, and, and Aristotle and Socrates, and in, in the Judaic tradition, we got Jeremiah. It's all a search for something higher out of which a uh, more modern form of human civilization and, if you will, human ways of being in the world emerged. Jasper has wondered for years, is there something like a new axial age? And I'm wondering the same thing too, 50 years later, John. Are we on the verge of, as a species, uh, forming a new axial age in which we say we are one species on a planet with millions of others. We are of it, not above it. We're children of the biosphere, not to conquer it, to live in harmony with it at long last, to not put nature on the rack and rest our due, which was the West, but it's now Japan and China and Southeast Asia and all the other countries that have become first world or are becoming first world, yet lift people out of poverty and be in the world and be humans in some different way that we, we don't know yet. And we don't have Martin Luther King to help us. Mm-hmm. I, I, and, and everybody's terrified. Another image that came to me is, uh, do you know about the, the Atlantic Charter? Yes. Well, to say it for the audience, it, it was August 9th to 11th, 1941. I looked it up recently. So it's very early in the war. The Battle of Britain was going on. The United States hadn't entered the war. Germany had conquered Western Europe, was dropping bombs, as I said, on, on, uh, on Britain. Uh, Japan was creating the greater co-prosperity sphere. Uh, Roosevelt uh, came north on the USS Augusta to off the coast of Newfoundland. Churchill arrived on HMS Prince of Wales. There are wonderful films of Roosevelt, who had had polio, making his way across the bridge between the two ships, holding onto the rails. Churchill and Roosevelt talked about the post-World War II world a year and a half after the war started, or a year after the war started, year and a half, I guess. And they came up with eight points. They didn't call it anything special. It became the Atlantic Charter. What's staggering to me is, before the war was over, before there was a, a grounds to believe that we would win it, two of the best leaders in the Western world got together and they conceived of a post-war world. We need now to conceive of a post-COVID-19 COVID-19 world where we're causing, we're causing the damage. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, we need something like, a, you know, to be grandiose, a global charter. Uh, if ever there was a time that it was possible that we could do it in the midst of this agony, John, with people not having money and they can't get jobs, and I have a 15% chance of dying at age 80 if I get this, 
the next couple of years is the time. Churchill and, and Roosevelt did this in, in 41, in August. Not in 40. Uh, let's see, I was born in 1939, and Hitler invaded Poland three weeks before I was born. He invaded us on September 1st, 1939. So this is, this is roughly two years later. Now is not the time for global charter. The house is on fire. Right. But it will be in the coming few years. We're going to come out of this saying, what in the, what are we done? What are we doing? If we're not just, you know, how stupid can we be as a species? And, and John, this is in the face of the following. Uh, I have a friend, Lars Larsen in Sweden. He's, he's, he's wonderful. We had a meeting in Stockholm in December, roughly to talk about this. Lars told me that a, an Australian copper mining company had come into, Austria, into Sweden, and they wanted to put in a, a massive extractive mine in the north of Sweden. And the Swedish parliament said no. And it turned out there's an international trade agreement that overrides the Swedish parliament, and the, the, uh, the Australian company is going to come in and can mine. Nobody's being evil. The people who created the international trade agreement are working for the benefit of humanity by making industry grow to build things we need, which is like copper, which is in war with the good people who are saying we can't have that. There are all of these agreements. The copper mine is the juggernaut economy that's going to continue to grow. And they're not being evil. They're, 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 they're mining copper. And we need copper. So these are just huge issues. They're global, civilizational, and existential. And we have to start thinking about it. I mean, and who's we? Yeah, God, that's right. Yeah, it does seem to be that that our economic growth, our population, and our interconnectedness are simultaneously creating the issue, but also creating the the necessity to have a solution. And I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I, I certainly feel full of life trying to align for all of us to align. But this story is, is pretty old. I mean, number one, from a spiritual tradition, this is what Genesis was saying. I mean, the, the book of Genesis talks about, our, and it's certainly our interpretation of the book of Genesis. On the one hand, we say you should be a shepherd of, of nature, and the other, it's dominant, dominance over. It's, yeah. There's, yeah. there's something God created here. everything for Adam to go out and make use of. That's right. right. So there's something very and human. That was, and that was perfectly sensible 4,000 years ago. You know, we, we had been hunter-gatherers. We're, we're partway into the agricultural revolution, and there's, you know, maybe 100 million people, or whatever there were, go forth and multiply. But now there's 7 billion of us. But it's deep in Western culture. Yes. It's in Genesis. As you said, John, it's in Genesis. Uh, and it's in, it's in, uh, uh, I can't, whoever I was just referring to. Well, you know, put it on the rack and rest our view. It's the same theme. And it is the growth of modern civilization. It's the growth of technology from mm -hmm. seven stone tools to a billion tools by this tap process. It's us being smart, innovative, wonderful, nasty, more wonderful than nasty. 
now we here we are we've done it but what what i think we're doing is we're we're acting unconsciously because we're not aware of the consequences of our actions we don't think broadly and interrelated we think this is this is shitty but on some level we think pretty selfishly and we operate by whatever's whatever's in front of us and 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 so currently people are unconscious of their attachment to their things their attachment to and this is not I, I think we all do this, right? I mean, barnacles cling to something. We all burrow into a home and we create that space. And wow. I'd be pissed if my home were gone, you know, tomorrow. So there, there's something fundamentally human about this, but but it, it's that it's unaware. It's that I, I think that's kind of the essence here is that we're unaware of the kinds of outcomes of what we're currently doing, and so therefore we just keep doing what we've always done. Yeah. And yes, I don't mean to have a funny voice. Yes. And I don't think the phrase juggernaut global economy is wrong. It is a juggernaut. It has enormous momentum. Uh, we will keep doing what we've been doing. It's what we what we know how to do. And again, it's not us being evil. Our inventiveness as 7 billion yes, people right. now collectively isn't different than it was you know, uh, 100 years ago in the early day or 200 years ago in the early days of the industrial revolution or Cro-Magnon, we're the same species. We're still being inventive. You know, we're making funny fish hooks. Just we're making a lot more of them because there's a lot more kinds of fish hooks to make things with. And finally we're exploding to, in, not to infinity, we're exploding up verbally and uh, vertically. I mean, if you, if you plot GDP over the past 2000 or 20,000 years, it's flat at about 400 bucks a year per person until around 200 years ago and it shoots upward and it's going upward almost vertically now and probably the diversity of tools is going up even faster than the number of people and the gdp i mean i have the impression at 80 that there's a lot more things that i can fiddle around with than there were when i was a kid yeah there's a lot more widgets the number of widgets per person is probably going up really fast now and it didn't for thousands of years well, tap this tap process is why. So I've I've got to go in about seven minutes. I've got a patient, and I want to be able to tie this up and also reconnect at some point because I, I I'm I'm going to be swimming through this conversation quite a bit over the next couple of weeks. So, so it, what do you what do you think it's most important? Oh, I got two questions actually. The first is how long do you think we're going to be operating in the way that we're operating with social distancing, isolating with your knowledge of how viruses and systems work? What's your prediction? John, I'm not an expert. There's this, there are these two studies again by, uh, I think it's Neil Ferguson, anyway, it's Ferguson from Imperial college mm. that you can go online and find. And, uh, Mikhail, M-I-K-H-A-I-L, Prokopenko, P-R-O-K-O-P-E-N-K-O, yesterday has online their study of Australia. And for Australia, social distancing works if it's over 80%. If it's under 70%, doesn't help. And it has to last for 13 weeks in their study. Uh, 
because you want to flatten the curve so that not everybody goes to the emergency room at the same time. Right. And school closings, uh, the Propokenko report uh, finds, helps if you're over 70%. It doesn't help at least in Australia. But that depends upon the geography of Australia and where cities are. Mm-hmm. So the Netherlands would be different. I'm hoping that Propokenko will make his computer simulation available to people around the world so they can tune it to being in New Jersey or Nebraska or, you know, the Arctic tundra or whatever. So I think the, uh, the next thing is already there are signs that I think we've both seen that in Hong Kong, the diseases maybe is starting to resurge again. So when you relax from the social isolation, the virus bounces back. Well, then we're going to have to confront that. By the way, it means something else huge that we haven't talked about. What happens to our supply chains that are fragile? Sure. Uh, I'm actually working with some colleagues on that, too, and I think a bunch of people are. We have to study supply chains standing back up and functioning when the workforce to man and woman them will maybe episodic. And supply chains are incredibly fragile because they're just in time, and they have rigid contracts Whereas the Japanese have a contract that says, we'll work with you so you can jury rig and solve things. Contracts in the United States and Europe and most of the world are rigid. This other kind of contract are called incomplete contracts. And Thomas Choi at Arizona State University and I and some others published a paper a couple of years ago saying, we have to investigate incomplete contracts. And I'm just talking to Tom right now or yesterday. He's writing an article for Harvard Business Review rather fast. Uh, we, we collectively have to figure out how to stand our economy back up when it's going to be piecemeal and, and supply chains are going to stay fragile because it's just in time delivery rather than uh, don't do just in time because if anything screws up, you're not robust. So there's a well worked out body of work saying don't be just in time, um, be less efficient but more robust to failures, and mostly the globe doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we kind of know we have maybe six or eight months to try to think, fix things in our contracting systems and so on. I'm no expert, John, but that's doable. We may have time to do it. And meanwhile, our president is saying, let's let's let up the social isolation uh, in a couple of weeks. So we'll go back to work. And he's being pressed. It's not stupid. He's being pressed by all kinds of industry and so on, saying, look, this is really bad for the economy. And it is. We're going to have to choose between how many people dying, or do we open up the floodgates and let people wander around when they're carrying the virus and transmitting it? The the implications from the Prokopenko study is, if we let up social isolation and we're less than 70% or whatever it is in the United States, there's some kind of phase transition between 70 or 80%. It's going to explode. There's just a thing in the New York Times saying today that uh, in New York, COVID-19 is doubling every three days. Well, yeah. It's hideous. The house is on fire. It's like the early days of World War II. Uh, it's the worst thing. I lived through World War II when I was a little kid, safe in Sacramento, in a victory garden eating peas. I stole them. We're in, we're in a similar situation, but this time we have caused it, not by being evil, but by being creative and building things. We're just overbuilding. Yeah, I, I think that 
what comes up for me is that we've all been through individual traumas and anytime something happens in my life that seems completely overwhelming, I, I try to remember that I've made it through a lot in my life. And one of the best things I can do is suit up and show up as best as I possibly can each and every day. And when I, my mind tends to go into catastrophic thinking, I try to pull it back a little bit because that's not a very healthy place to be. Although I want to imagine catastrophe in order, oddly enough, to be creative and prepare for what might be going on. So, okay, in closing, Stu, anything you else you want to, anything left hanging? Uh I want to echo something that you said, John. You said we are seeing, and I think we are, an enormous burst of creativity around the globe. And I'm spending an awful lot of my time thinking, so my goodness, what can I do? Mm -hmm. I think millions of are thinking, what can I do? How can I reach out? What can we create to deal with this? Right. Uh, so we are we are in a stage a little bit like a short, when Pearl Harbor happened, this is going on in the United States. It's an emergency response, an emergency collector, out of which a lot of creativity can come, but we may have millions of deaths. So it's just possible, just possible, that we can conceive of a new axial age in which we come to be in harmony with the planet and we get there something like 10 years from now or we move towards it 10 years from now. If so, this is hideous, uh, but it will have been a, a, a miracle if that happens. Uh, we can do it, but we're going to have to come together to do it. Well said. I like the axial age piece, Stu. I do too. I barely understand it. Get Carl Jasper's book, or there's a couple of books on the axial age. They're just amazing. Okay, I will. Well, I want to leave it open. I'll email you, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful for your time today, Stu. I really appreciate it. I'm grateful for you for doing it, and it's fun to talk. It's more than fun. This, this is what we're talking about right now is more important than anything else. Yeah. I don't know how many people are thinking on this range of levels about it, John. So you're going to do a podcast. Please copy me on the podcast when you get in the link. I will. Um, you will. Is there? What else can be done with the podcast? It could be written up and published. Yeah. Well, that's that's what I'm I'm doing. It's it's crazy right now, Stu. I'm I'm writing blog. I'm writing papers on this. I'm recording songs that I'm writing on this. I'm talking to people. I'm we're working with people in their homes to manage everything from anxiety to communication to routines and fears and how to how to create meaning out of something i i think i'm certainly borrowing from some of the mythic um mythic ideas to try to story and narrativize this experience in a way that helps ground and orient people in in a meaning that is beyond the kind of reduction the reduction of our us into consumers and into price tags as you said you know that because if it's only economic and that's where our self-worth and sense of value is, then we're suffering greatly. But if we are, if that's just a part of us and we can conceptualize our experience beyond economics, you know, certainly we hurt, we suffer, but we suffer with meaning. And I think that's what Viktor Frankl was talking about in Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah, right. I agree. 
Well, Stu, really, it's it's great talking to you. I'm, I'm of course, going to be dropping in on you every now and then, and I, I always love talking to you. Thank you for doing it, John. So, so do copy me on this. I will. And I hope people find it useful. It, it, that's understates it, John. I'm right about what I'm saying. Yeah. I am right that this is civilizational, it's global, it's existential, and our species has to confront it, roughly speaking, now. And now is sort of within the next decade. Well, thanks, man. I'll um, I'll email you as soon as I finish editing, and I'll send you the uh, the link. So stay safe, wash your hands, and stuff like that. Yeah, you too, man. You too. Bye. All right. See ya. Thank you, John. Bye. Thank you. Down.